0: Would you take your Bibles this morning and join me in turning to the New Testament Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3. Years ago when the Lord put on my heart the desire to follow Him in full-time ministry, I was working for a company in Los Angeles, it's called Aperon Technology, it was a small aerospace company and I enjoyed my job, it met my needs and even took care of a few of my wants, but I felt the Lord was directing me in a special way and following the Lord's will. It required that I leave this job that was taking care of the bills and, and then some. And, and it led me to pursue Bible college and eventually a, a job on a church staff that, that took care of my needs, but it was a gigantic step of faith. Leaving a position that was pretty secure uh, in an area in which I was, I was learning more and more to launch out into the unknown required a step of faith. And I remember about the time I got accustomed to that place where the step had led me that God required another step of faith and really a larger step of faith. As I was serving on a church staff where uh, the needs were met and there was the comfort of a church family and friends that we cared about deeply, uh, the Lord began to place on my heart a desire to come to this area to, to start a church. And so we determined that we would take that step of faith. So we'd left a a pretty good job for a job that was more in keeping with God's will for my life, but did a little less in the way of meeting the needs. And, And then we went to a place where there was zero income at all, and a place where we didn't know anybody, and we were happy to go because we thought that's what the Lord wanted us to do. I remember it became... Uh, evident there would need to be some finances to start a church, and our family had been saving up to buy a home. And God put upon our heart to take uh, our savings account and use the monies to help the church get started, to rent a facility and get the materials needed. And uh, it, it wasn't a lot of money to us. It was 100% of what we had, so it was a lot to us, but uh, not, not a large amount. But the Lord said, do this, and we were thrilled to to do that for the Lord. When that wasn't enough, we had two vehicles, and the Lord put on our hearts to sell one of the two, to use that money to put into this church when it was just getting started and when people were just really coming to this place and coming to know the Lord. Shortly after arriving in this area, I met a man in the community, and he was cordial enough, but he was obviously irritated with what he called organized Religion. I've often wondered facetiously, you know, what would be the opposite then? Are you for disorganized religion? But I knew what he was getting at, and although I wouldn't use that term to describe what we do here, I believe that he was referring to what we do here when he used the expression organized religion. Apparently this man had been burned at some point in his life in a church and, and those embers apparently were still kind of roasting and I added a little fuel to the fire by inviting him to church and, and he just began to talk and talk and talk and I let him talk and, and he went on to share that preachers and churches were just in it for the power and for the money. It was all about control and he just went on and on and I let him speak but as he was speaking, speaking I was thinking to myself, that, that hasn't been my experience. I went from one job where where the checks were uh, much bigger to a check that was smaller to a place where there was no check. We took the little bit we had and took it down to nothing. And he continued to talk and make his point. At that time, uh, the time of that conversation, our, our family really had nothing. We had no money, hardly anybody was coming to the church, our cupboards were nearly empty. And as he was speaking, sharing his view on things, I'd never felt so misunderstood in all of my life. As he was talking, I I just thought, you're exactly wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. You're 100 percent wrong. I, I know I'm far from perfect and God has to work on my hearts in terms of motive often, but I knew At that moment, we were really seeking to do what we believed to be God's will. We wanted it to be done for God's glory and for the good of other people. We had no agenda apart from just simply trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And with those who knew the Lord, we wanted to encourage them. And and the biblical word would be edify to build them up in their faith. I wonder, have you ever felt judged or criticized or misunderstood? And I want to share with you that I know someone that can relate with those feelings. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's the object of our study as we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We know that so far in our study of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been criticized and misunderstood just nonstop. And, And really, as we look to this text, we're going to find he's catching it in a unique way from his friend's And from his foes, as well as from his family. Just about everybody in the realm of Jesus Christ was was coming to him with their judgment, with their conclusion. And the way Jesus dealt with this assault is masterful. And I believe through his experience we can be encouraged and instructed as well. I'd like to invite you, if you're able today, to join me in standing as we look to this text together. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to begin, and I think the, uh, uh, the outlines you were provided with say we're going to begin today in verse 21. If I may, I'd like to back up one verse to verse 20. And the Bible says, and the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. Now, I'm going to read on, but I just I want you to get a glimpse into how busy the life of Jesus and the apostles were. Literally, the crowds would press on them. There was so much to get accomplished that they literally had occasions where they couldn't eat. There was just so much happening around them. Busy, all right? Verse 21, And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He's beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. Now I'm going to read on, but the Bible speaks here of scribes. Scribes were kind of like religious attorneys of the day, all right? They had a lot of duties, but this, the, this particular duty that brought them from Jerusalem to where Jesus was, was basically to look Jesus over, try and figure Him out, put a title on Him, put a label on Him, and render their verdict as to what they thought about Jesus, and and so they come and say that Jesus, that uh, he hath bills above, that big word there essentially means the devil. Verse 23. And he called them unto him and said unto them in a parable, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand. But hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men. And blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he hath an unclean spirit. There came then his brethren and his mother and standing without sent unto him calling him and the multitude sat about him and they said unto him behold thy mother and and thy brethren and without they, they seek for thee and he answered them saying who is my mother or my brother and I'm going to read on uh, Jesus is making a point a point of emphasis in these words he didn't forget who his mom or his brethren were. He's seeking to make a point. Verse 34, and, and he looked round about them, which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brother. In other words, they're without, seeking for Jesus within. Here he is, and those that are near him. He looks at them and says, Behold, my mother and my brother. In other words, he says, You guys are my family. Verse 35, for whosoever shall do the will of God the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. I want you to go back, please, to verse 30. And the Bible in verse 30 says this, Because they said. They're always saying something, aren't they? Every now and then we'll have like a, an expression or a saying, and, and someone will say, well, they say, and then they'll share their expression. And I always wonder, who are they? And why are they always saying things? And how do we know they are right? They're always saying something. The Bible in verse 30 says, they said. I want you to go back to verse 21 near the end of that verse where the Bible says, for they said. He's beside himself. Again, we see they said. They always seem to have something to say. And I want us to observe this occasion and how Jesus handled it. And I want us to see that there is much for us to learn in this study today. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this time of of, of learning. And Lord, I do pray that you'd use me to be a help and a blessing to your people here this morning. Um, May we grow. May we learn so that we can be useful in, in your work and for your glory. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our text says, They said... And they are always saying something, aren't they? I think we have all been in experiences where people felt obligated to evaluate us and then just felt obligated to share their findings, and they said, if you're a huge sports enthusiast, they'll say that you're a fan. They will say that you are a dedicated and hard worker if you live for your career and financial gain. If education is extremely important to you, they'll say you're studious and and that you're bright. But if you're passionate about living your life for eternal values and for the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll say, you're probably out of your mind. That really shouldn't surprise us because that is what they have had to say about people of faith for thousands of years. Of the prophet that went to anoint Jehu, the Bible tells us in 2 Kings 9 that they said, Wherefore came this mad fellow to thee? He's crazy. Of the apostle Paul, they said in Acts 26, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. Of The preacher in the 1800s by the name of D.L. Moody, who saw over a million people come to know Christ through his ministry, and over a hundred million people heard him preach. He was known in his hometown of Chicago as Crazy Moody. They always seem to have something to say. And when it comes to people of faith, they often have nothing good to say. If anyone lived for the will of the Father, God the Father, it was God the Son, Jesus Christ. And of His life, they had much to say. They just couldn't help but take note of His life and to comment on His life. And, And as we think of this and we look to our outlines as you received today, I want us to begin by seeing the unreasonable slander. Now get the idea as you read through this text that the friends of Christ, they basically said, all right, Jesus, enough is enough. You've taken this further than we thought it would go. You've done more with this than we ever thought would actually happen. And in the verses leading up to our text, we find the ministry of Jesus is taking off. The crowds are growing. It was going further again than they would have imagined. And I'm sure someone suggested to Jesus Christ, would you get a hold of yourself? Get a hold of yourself here. And as he did not do what they expected him to do, they said, if you're not going to get a hold of yourself, we'll get a hold of you. And the Bible says this, they went out to lay hold on him. They were so, so sure that Jesus had just totally lost it. It's always disappointing to me when dialogue diminishes to the point where it, it becomes name-calling and people accuse others of, of being just totally out of their minds. I think I've seen more than a few news shows where there's two politicians from D.C. with different perspectives, and one says to the other, I think you're just absolutely out of your mind, and this one says, I think you're out of your mind, and I hear that going back and forth, and I always think to myself, they're both right, okay? I think they are both out of their minds, and, and when people really degenerate their talks to just simply accusing and, and name-calling, we always have a problem. As bad as that was, that his friends are approaching him this way, the scribes show up. The scribes, the Bible says, which came from Jerusalem, they came about 120 miles to look Jesus over, to evaluate him to put that label on him, to put him in a theological box so they could take him back to their theological laboratory, so to speak, and put him on a shelf and say, all right, there he is. We, we labeled him. We know what he's all about. And they came and looked Jesus Christ over, and they didn't understand everything they saw. But they said, He hath Beelzebub, by the prince of devils, casteth he out devils. According to Luke's expansion of this text, there's a parallel passage In Luke chapter 12, the Bible tells us that just before the scribes said that, Jesus actually cast an evil spirit out of a person. And what Jesus was doing was He he pushed them back in a corner. Being religious men, they would have had to have known that it was only by the power of God that an evil spirit could have been removed from another person. But as that was all happening, they determined rather to attribute the power of Jesus Christ to the power of Satan. And it's incredible to me that these religious people had such a willful disbelief, such an irresponsible finding. The psalmist speaks of this attitude in Psalm 14, 1, where the Bible says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. If we were to take the time to go to that passage, you'll notice there are some italicized words in the Bible put there to provide ease of reading. But if that verse is read in the Hebrew, it reads this way, the fool hath said in his heart, no God. That's a foolish thing to do, to know the truth and yet deny it, to refuse it, to run from it. And these scribes came, and if anybody should have known who Jesus was, it should have been them. There was the testimony of God the Father on the day of His baptism. There were the fulfilled prophecies. They'd heard Him teach. They'd seen the miracles and heard of other miracles. They now have just witnessed Jesus casting an evil spirit out of a person. And rather than honoring and glorifying God, they refuse and reject This was an unreasonable slander. Yet they proceed with their malicious attack. And in response to their unreasonable slander, we find an undeniable strength. Jesus responds to all this with a rhetorical question. The Bible in verse 23 tells us, he asked them in a parable, how can Satan cast out Satan? He's saying rhetorically, help me out again, Satan casting out Satan, how does that work? He said, how can a kingdom or how can a house that is divided against itself stand? And the obvious answer is, it absolutely cannot. It'll fall, it'll it'll break down, it'll never work. And and Jesus was getting to the point, why in the world would Satan cast out Satan? That, That does not work. In verse 27, Jesus in essence says that a burglar can't go into someone's house and spoil his goods, take his stuff, and lest he bind the man of the house, the strong man. In dealing with the strong man, Jesus was referring to the devil. But by speaking of binding the strong man, here's what Jesus was saying. The power I have is greater than that of the devil. Can't you see that? Now, when Jesus gave that response, he was answering these critics But more than that, I believe Jesus was sharing truth with us so that in this day, when we study that, we can be encouraged. Because all of us are facing obstacles and facing difficulties in life, and it's really good to know that Jesus shares with us that, that yes, there is a strong foe, there is a strong opponent, but Jesus is saying this, I'm stronger than the strong man, I'm the strongest man, and, and there's no power greater than the power that I have. When I was about 12, I made a trip to several countries in Asia with my dad, and we had a long trip home. It had been a tiring trip all along the way. When we got back to LAX, My dad told me, you go stand right there where the luggage comes out. You get that spot. You don't give it up. I'm going to go make a phone call. And for my dad, it was always about, you know, you got to be the first one on the plane. you got to be the first one off the plane and first one to get the bag. You know, it's kind of all like a contest of winning or something. But I knew when he said do something, I'd better do it. And so I ran right over to that spot. I didn't just get a spot around the carousel where the bags would come down. I got the spot where the bags would actually fall down right in front of me. It was the best spot. And as I was standing there, proud of myself for following my dad's leading and getting where I was supposed to go, a man with, I remember it like it was yesterday, with a metal briefcase. He came in and literally swung that briefcase and hit me with it, about knocked me off my feet, and he stood right in the spot that I had formerly occupied. And my first thought was, my dad's going to be mad at me, not him, at me. I gave up the good spot. He told me to stand there, and I didn't do it. My next thought was, I thought, I wonder if I could take this guy, you know, he was... He's a little bigger than me. I looked him over, and he looked stronger than me. And it was just a few seconds. I think it felt like moments, just a few seconds. But before I knew it, my dad arrived. And he told that guy, he said, that boy you just pushed is my son. And I think that man went through some of the similar thoughts that I went through as I was evaluating if I could take him or not. Because he looked at my dad for a split second, and I quote, this is exactly what he said. He said, so sorry. (laughs) <laughs> and he stepped away. And my dad said, get back in your spot, son. I, I want you to see what's happening here. I have, a, have an opponent, a foe, a problem, an obstacle that's stronger than me. And that would have been the end of fulfilling that which I'd been given to do by my father. Stronger. But when someone stronger than that which was stronger than me came along and moved him out of the way, I was able to fulfill my Father's will because my Father is stronger than that guy. And I want you to know today there's an undeniable strength found in Jesus Christ. And it not only served as a purpose in that moment, it provides us in this moment with the truth that we can confidently live knowing that our Heavenly Father is bigger than any father. In Psalm 89 and verse 8, the Bible says, O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Yes, friends, we do find an adversary in the devil who does walk about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, we read in 1 Peter 5.8. But I want you to also know that we have a God who says, In the midst of the adversity, fear need not be our response. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7 that God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And God wants us to know there are many strong forces in our world, but none are stronger than Him. We find an undeniable strength. And then Jesus goes on to share a few words that we often describe as the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin. Now I want us to look at verse 28. Jesus says here, Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. I think the thought of The unpardonable sin makes people uneasy. I believe the first reason it does is because certainly the Lord Jesus Christ asserts what He calls here eternal damnation. For those that commit this sin, eternal damnation. Now, we don't have to like what Jesus says, but that never changes the truth of what Jesus says if all of the world were to take an occasion to vote on whether or not the Bible is true and if all of the world said no it's not true it doesn't change the fact that it is indeed the Word of God it is true and it endures forever. I'm not excited about the thought of eternal damnation but it's true because Jesus said it. I think there's something unsettling about the thought of eternal Damnation, as Jesus put it. There's also this matter of just what was Jesus referring to here. And When it comes to this matter that we call the unpardonable sin that comes from this text and another parallel text in Luke 12, we sometimes can find ourselves being confused. But I really believe Jesus did not intend it to be a mystery for this reason. He doesn't leave us to wonder what it is. He tells us clearly, here it is. Here's the unpardonable sin. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness. Now there is much to be said about this thought more than I will take time to say today. More perhaps than I would even understand to its depths. But this much I do know. At its core, this sin is denying the Holy Spirit's influence. It is attributing to the devil the work of God. It is rejecting the influence of the Lord. God can and will forgive any sin, but if we choose to remain in unbelief, we have placed ourselves in condemnation. And if ever there was an example of willful disbelief, it is these of whom we've been learning, who they have voluntarily, they have voluntarily removed themselves from that which they know to be true. And in their determination, they've said, no, God, they've been foolish in their hearts. And and in so doing, they've basically said, I will never trust God rejected the Lord you see these who oppose Christ had a determination in their rejection the first work that leads anyone to come to have a relationship with God is the wooing of the spirit the conviction of our sins at times and the Holy Spirit does a work and they had said no to that influence it was the same mindset seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. There was an intense fervor to crucify Jesus Christ. How ironic that just a short time before that, they were all cheering as Jesus arrived, but they had made a determination and they rejected the witness and truth of his life. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. You see, that's what Jesus is. Matthew, writing of Jesus Christ, said in Matthew 4, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light. The prophets said Jesus would come as a light. The contemporaries of Christ said Jesus came and He was a light. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He is that light. I've had a few people over my years here come to me and say, you know, I'm afraid I've committed the unpardonable sin. And to that statement, I want to say today, if you're nervous about whether you've committed the unpardonable sin... You clearly have not. Because the source of those nerves, the spiritual terminology is conviction. And that's brought about by the Holy Spirit of God. And you would have no concern for God, the things of God, for sin or for righteousness, any of that, were it not for the working of the Holy Spirit of God. So if you're nervous about that, I want you to know it, it, it's nothing that uh, uh, you cannot recover from. And that's important to know. It's important to understand. We have to be sensitive to the leading of God. If conviction is in our hearts, God is, is doing something. And there is a way to victory for all of us. It's to accept the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot have eternal damnation if you've received eternal life. The two just don't go together. The Bible says in Colossians 1.14, In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Jesus in John 6 and verse 37 said this, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I want you to know the sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin that we don't seek forgiveness for from God. Jesus says that He will forgive us. Now, we can come to that point where we draw a line and say, I will never, and we are cemented in our disbelief. May we be certain that that is not God's work in our life, but our decision to reject the Lord. I heard a story years ago of a couple boys who just got so tired of hearing how smart this old man who lived in their village was. He was the town sage. He was the one who was so wise and... And they came up with what they thought was a foolproof plan to trick this old man and show that he wasn't as smart as everyone thought he was. And they were smart like no one thought they were. And they got a little bird. And here was their plan. They were going to go to the old man's house and they were going to say, Old man, he was blind as well. They were going to say, Is this bird in our hands living or dead? If the old man said that bird is living, they just squished the little bird. He'd cease to be living. They'd prove the old man right, or wrong, rather, and uh, their objectives would be accomplished. If he said it was dead, they'd just let the bird go, and either way, they win. They were so excited. No way out for this old guy. So they, they make their way to his home, and, and they ask the old sage, Is the bird in our hands living or dead? They were so excited with, with this little uh, intellectual thought process they went through. And, and as they said that, the old man thought for a moment, and he said, The answer to that question is in your hands. And friends, I don't want to lead any of us to believe today that we work our way to heaven through our good works. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that there's a sense where a relationship with God lies in our hands insofar as we respond to His work in our lives. We do have a choice to make in terms of our acceptance of Jesus and the forgiveness He brings. And Jesus, I believe, was making that point here. And so we see the unpardonable sin, but as we move on, I want us to consider the unavoidable solution. As the misunderstanding of Christ continues, it gets really closer. And by that I mean we've seen His friends, we've seen His foe, but now His family, as the Bible says, they're standing without and they're calling Him. And, and obviously they thought that He needed to have someone intervene. They thought they knew what was best. And I don't know, maybe they were worried about Jesus. They, they were worried. Or maybe... They were embarrassed of Jesus. The brothers, maybe they thought, oh man, everyone's going to think we're all nuts. I don't know exactly what their motivation was. But they come to Jesus and they try to intervene. And the point of the words of Christ shares in response to their call was to make a point. He obviously was not denying his family. He was seeking to teach a lesson to his followers. And to understand that lesson, we have to put ourselves in this context. Now I want you to listen to this and we'll be done shortly. What had Jesus just talked about? What has to happen for eternal damnation? And here I believe he's talking about what has to happen in eternal life. And he's capturing this moment, this this moment in time, this illustration... To reveal that. And he uses a family analogy. He says that we are in his family if we do the will of God. Now again, to some that may sound like we have to do good works to establish a relationship with God. And and just about every group in all of the world has their list of what you need to do to be accepted by God. Everything from join the church, to baptism, to the Lord's Supper, to give an offering to this or that or the other. And I would be the first to tell you, none of that needs to be done to establish a relationship with God. I'm not saying we work our way into a relationship with God. The first step in the life of anyone who has a relationship with God is faith or believing. In John 6, the Bible says this in verses 28 and 29, Then said they unto Jesus, unto Him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. Friends, there's only one solution to our need. And it is faith in Jesus Christ and the Christ of our faith, the two coming together. But we also find the reality that works will follow our faith. For Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I always like to clarify there, it doesn't read the way I used to think it read. Jesus did not say, if you keep my commandments, I will love you. His love's a settled issue for those that have placed their faith in him. He said, if you love me, why don't you do those things I've taught you to do? Obey, follow, do that which I've given by way of commandments. You see, friends, our love should be to the Lord. and our lives for the Lord, it commences, it continues, and it culminates in faith. They are always talking. But while they were talking, there were some near Christ who weren't listening to them. They were listening to Jesus. And I, I like the way it says in John 7 of those that listened to Jesus, they said, never man spake like this man. They said nobody has ever spoken the way he does. His words are truth. His words are life. So we think of this today. Let me ask you, based on the criteria, not of me, not of a denomination, not of some creed, based on the criteria of the words of Christ here, are you in the family? Are you in the family? Jesus was able to look around and and say, behold, you're my family. Are you in the family? Maybe you've been born again, as Jesus says in John 3, into the family. Let me ask you this. Are you following Him by faith? Is a practical difference being made in your life because of that family relationship? Our Father, thank you today for this opportunity to, to look at this text and, and to see the way in which you were working. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to look in our own hearts. The reality is everyone in this room will either spend eternity in in, in eternal damnation or with you through eternal life. God, I pray that you would help us to not reject your work in our hearts, to not spurn your love and and to turn you away. And Lord, I do believe that that time can come in our lives where we've just said no to you so long and so vehemently that, as you say, your spirit will not always strive with man. May we in honesty and integrity today consider our standing with you and make changes as necessary as you enable and lead us. We prayed his prayer today in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed this morning, and we'll be done shortly. We ended with just a couple questions. Are you in the family? And if so, how are you doing in the family? Maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know, Pastor, that, that was an interesting text. And it, believe me, it was. Maybe you'd say today, Pastor, the reality is there there were some words that Jesus shared or just observing the way he handled the criticism. But maybe you're here today.